0: Let's begin, folks. I am excited and very honored to have Chris McIntyre here with us. He's with the Intercontinental Exchange. He is president of ICE Mortgage Services as well as president of MERS. Chris, thank you so much for taking time to join me today on the Liquid and Lending podcast.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, David. I appreciate the opportunity and, and look forward to, to talking a little bit about what we're doing here at, at MERS and more broadly at Intercontinental Exchange with respect to mortgage.
0: Chris, you've attended a lot of MERS open houses and the receptions, and I had the privilege of sitting down with you. But you're one of these guys that kind of sits a little bit in the background, and so I want our listeners to get to know you. So they may have met you at one of the MERS events, but I want them to get to know you. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started in the industry and your education, just real briefly. What's
1: your background? Yeah, so my background, I started principally career in 92. Prior to that, I was a little bit of an entrepreneur. I had a small business. And then when I moved to Atlanta, I got involved in journalism. In particular, I worked mm. at the newspaper called The Bond Buyer which is a yeah. daily newspaper. And uh, at the time, it was owned by Thompson, which is, you know, the large conglomerate. Yep. And what I did there was really cut my teeth on finance. I remember the first story I covered was Orange County's bankruptcy because of derivatives. And, you know, this goes <laughs> yeah. it kind of dates me a little bit, but but really the the the, the benefit of that was that since it was a daily paper and it was for some pretty sophisticated readers you really had to like dig in and understand the topic and and, and you know it specifically the finance and mortgage backed securities in that case and and interest rates and really trying to piece the, the puzzle together And so over a number of years, uh, just because of pure volume and just being able to observe the the financial and capital markets, just picked up on a lot of knowledge that was uh, relevant to certainly interest rates and more broadly capital markets. And then uh, over a number of years, just kind of progressed from there and then worked for a couple startups, which really kind of gave me that benefit of, you know, when you're working for a startup, you do a little bit of everything. I mean, you do a little bit of, yes. you know, a little bit of finance, you do a little bit of strategic planning. And so that kind of brought me through 2000.
0: Yeah, well, I lived through the Orange County bankruptcy, and I subscribed to the Bomb Buyer magazine. I was one of the guys that read that, so I've read probably some of your articles, and it was really interesting living through that. Literally, had a mortgage company in Orange County at the time. Mm-hmm. But you also have some background as a communication director. Talk briefly about that. And with the Federal Home Loan Bank in Atlanta. That's pretty significant.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so really, what happened was it was it was very interesting. I mean, at the time, I had finished my business school, so I went to Georgia State University as a, an MBA mm-hmm. student part time, and I came out in 2001, and I remember it distinctly because it was probably about a month before 9/11, and the year previous, 2000, was really kind of a robust year for MBA graduates, lots of opportunities with you know yeah. consultancies and other. Uh, you know, other kind of typical NBA path. And then, uh, unfortunately, you know, we had the tragedy of of 9-11 and really there was you know, job markets was was a little sluggish, but I had a friend who worked at the Federal Home Loan Bank of Atlanta, was a fellow graduate, said, hey, look, you know, they're they're, they're starting to do some interesting things here, and so I uh, interviewed and had been there for approximately 10 years. I worked under a number of CEOs. Really, though I worked in communications, I had a little broader portfolio. I worked on technology projects. I worked in risk management. I worked in operations, so it really gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about you know banking from the inside and also, too, just the kind of legal regulatory complexity of government-sponsored enterprise. So I spent quite a bit of time in Washington, certainly working with the Federal Home Loan Bank Board at the time, which has now become FHFA, and so really kind of you get to see all aspects of that type of lending institution. And also, too, I mean, at the time, I think we had close to 1,200 members. So, you know, they ranged anywhere in size from Navy Federal Credit Union, which is, you know, the, I think remains the world's largest credit union. I mean, it's, it's a large, is. large institution. And then, you know, large commercial banks. At the time, of course, Countrywide was a large member, and that <laughs> represented uh, wow. a lot of interesting uh, experiences History, as we yeah. approached the crisis. So, and, and yeah. I rode through that on the crisis, and I mean, I, I think it was evident that there was going to be some some challenges. I think, you know, I did a lot of work with the Federal Reserve Banks as well at the time and really just tried to, you know, be be almost a firefighter, certainly during that period.
0: Well, there was a lot of fires to fight during that time. I remember that so well, it just seems like just yesterday. You also served as a board member of MISMO. We don't need to get into that, but it's kind of interesting. That may have led to some of the recent acquisitions you've made. What would you say are really pivotal books for you, or books that you reference that you reference in your worldview or your business view? What would you say are some of the books that are some of your favorites?
1: Oh that, that's kind of an interesting question. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a bibliophile if you would. I mean, I <laughs> it's my favorite hobby really. It, it is. And I know at the outset you mentioned uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom with T. Lawrence and that's that's kind of a yeah, go-to sure. book. Um, you know, uh, book. you know, really just exploring all the complexities of battle and strategy and you know how underdogs win. That's always been a kind of perennial favorite. I like a lot of the Stoics. Uh, Marcus Aurelius. I mean, it's one I go back to regularly. More recently, Ray Dalio's book, um, Work and Work in Life. It's it's an outstanding book. And outstanding, so, anyway. highly recommend
0: that for our listeners.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about that book. And I mean, he's he's good. He's got a good LinkedIn. He's got good Twitter. And I think the way that he approaches management is something that I try to do here where I'm really, you know, try to be as open as possible and certainly solicit contrarian opinions because I think, you know, his concept about, you know, idea meritocracy is, I think, real Mm -hmm. important in the sense that, you know, there's any number of ideas that can bubble up from different parts of the organization. And then I also, you know, and, and Amy can attest to this, is that, um, You know, I want people to challenge my opinion, and so I can sharpen my thinking. And then, you know, generally literature, you know, there's a couple of good books, uh, Memoirs of Hadrian, which is a book that was basically a, a biography of Marcus Aurelius, which is, you know, again, one of my favorites.
0: That's excellent I you mentioned Amy it's Amy Moses who is uh, very involved there and someone's a dear friend and we'll tell you some great Amy stories sometimes but that'll be over a good beer it's, uh, yeah. uh, turns out I went to school in Iowa with her dad and we discovered that that's kind of one of those funny stories but let's talk about intercontinental exchange pivoting over to the company that you work for and specifically ice mortgage services and then of course president Merce but One of the things that really caught my attention was Intercontinental Exchange bought the New York Stock Exchange. And when you hear that, you go like, who are these guys? So for our listeners, Chris, give us a a kind of an overview of what Intercontinental Exchange is, who's a part of that. How'd that start? A little history, please.
1: Yeah, well, no. Look, it's a fascinating story, and it's really driven by our our CEO, Chairman Jeff Sprecher, who um, had this uh, vision—the kind of late '90s where he was looking at the power markets. He had a, a, a steep background mm. in, in electricity and power and energy. And so he saw just the emergence of the internet and in particular thinking about how you could trade and have counterparties execute across the internet in kind of a network fashion. So he bought a small company here called intercontinental power. And that's where, you know, wow. it's kind of a interesting, legendary story. Interesting route. Yeah, it is interesting roots. I mean, And so what happened was when he came in, he saw the the opportunity, went to both sides of the trade. So he went to the banks, which typically were trading as counterparties to, say, the BPs and the shells of the world and the totals and these kind of global multinational energy companies. And they were hedging risks with, you know, the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanley's of the world. And so if you recall at the time, interestingly enough, the big operation was Enron, right? So Enron was trading platform platform, you know, I think most people know the history there, but as as it's been referred to as the crooked E, which was their kind of E that was (laughs) kind of slightly off center. Mm -hmm. But but that was a market, if you think of a market structure there, that was a many to one. And I think Jeff's view was that markets should operate as many to many. And so he was able to go to some of those counterparties and say, look, invest in, in my platform. As it evolved over time, we looked at other markets and other types of energy trading. In particular, ICE is probably best renowned for its Brent crude oil contract. It is the global mm-hmm. benchmark for pricing oil. I learned a lot very early on about how you know benchmarks work. We also price LIBOR. Most people are probably familiar with that. So, I mean, we've got obviously working on some transitions around the changes in that as a benchmark. And then just over time through 2005 and more currently, we looked at the equity markets. There was an initial bid for the New York Stock Exchange, I believe it was 2011. And then it came back again in 2013, where we acquired the full stock exchange. So I think it's a real benefit. And, and I think a lot of your you know listeners will be familiar with the REITs that we list there and so there's there is oh, yeah. a, a connection with with mortgage
0: Yeah there is What is ICE's or Intercontinental Exchange's interest in mortgages? What's got them into acquiring MERS, which I think is a fascinating investment? And then, Simplify, give us some insights into your strategy. What is ICE thinking, and specifically you thinking, as you look at the market? Let's get your macro view of what's going on in mortgage, generally speaking, and then into a bit into your strategy, Chris. So, what is your perspective on the mortgage industry and looking at it from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean a good question. I mean, I think when you look at it and, and where the conversations really initiated in two thousand eleven, just as a coincidence, I met Jeff Specker at a Atlanta Metro Chamber of Commerce meeting and you know he was on the Daos. You probably know a little bit about the history, but if you don't yeah. ICE came in and created a clearinghouse for credit default swaps, right? So this was in two thousand and eight yep. and if you recall, um, AIG and you know, Lehman Brothers and all these companies failed because there was no transparency into who the counterparty was mm-hmm. and what the risk was there for credit default swaps. Um, you know, the, the joke is always, you know, a lot of people were long and wrong. And that really brought down, the, the leverage there brought down some of the, the, the financial markets. And the reason I referenced that was Clearly, had a cascading effect into to mortgage finance, and there was there was a you know number of years there where where really it was just you know very chaotic, and people were trying to figure out who was trading with whom and where their mortgages were and the servicing rights. And yeah. so, in two thousand eleven, when I ran into Jeff Sprecher, he mentioned something on his day house around, oh, hey, look, I think we can maybe come in and do something like we did with the clearinghouse for credit default swaps, maybe related to mortgage. That conversation evolved into, well, where can we come into, where can we find access or at least a point of access into the mortgage market? And that led to us creating some prototypes, some platforms that we did various things. I mean, we we auctioned off some non-performing loans, which was obviously quite a bit of activity in that around 2012 and 13. And then coincidentally, we went to a lot of the large banks and the banks said, you know, what would you like us to do? I said, I've got this platform, we can do these things. And and what happened was, is they said, well, how about you go over to MERS and help us going to fix that institution. And, and that was really, they were struggling there. There was data quality oh issues. Boy, yeah. They were under consent order. Yep. There was just a, a lot of turmoil and chaos. At the time, Bill Beckman was brought in. He was former CEO, city yep, background, and he was fantastic. He really kind of righted the ship, tried to work on governance. But when we came in, we, we really looked at a, a, a multi-dimensional kind of fix, if you would. I think if we came in with capital, that would have been one thing. But we said, look, we're, we're going to come in with capital. We're going to look at the technology because the platform needed to be refactored. It was done by a third-party outsource entity. I said, look, we're going to come in as an owner-operator. We're going to create a governance model that is kind of modeled off some of our clearinghouses. So in essence, the members still have a voice and say in, in the operations. But then we also recapitalize, and, and a lot of that was just looking at. I think there was 25 shareholders at the time, so it was it was kind of a complex capital structure. They also had saved a lot for reserves because of the litigation at the time there was quite a minute, quite a few lawsuits. So we really kind yes. of came across the front and said. we're going to try and fix all these things over a number of years, and we did. And so we were successful in that, and I think we fulfilled our obligations. And I know that most of the large banks and certainly some of the shareholders are very thankful, and that includes the Mortgage Bankers Association, American Land and Title Association. I mean, we really, we went in there and, you know, just did what we said we were going to do, kept our heads down, and executed well against a kind of a complex plan over a number of years.
0: Boy, there's a whole book and a whole interview—I mean, elongated interview—on that topic alone. How you did that? That'd be fascinating. But I'm more interested right now as we look forward into the markets and that entry point of getting into MERS and seeing the how where everything can go wrong, really, and then fixing it. Really did give you some insights into some opportunities. And specifically, we—I love talking about the e-mortgage. And the e-notes. And you have made a real significant commitment there, which speaks to a broader vision that you have. Tell us about that broader vision. Where do you see the mortgage of the future going? What does it look like, Chris, in your mind?
1: When you think about, you know, digitization of markets, and, and that's really been a theme of, of ICE, I think when I describe ICE, I said, look, it could be, and you know, you could probably sum it up in six words, and the futures market going from pits to screens, uh, which was, you know, open outcry. Yeah like you've seen at the CME or at any of the, right. the kind of futures market into screen, screen-based trading, which, you know, can be global. And we're, I think we've got screen standing in more than 100 countries. And then you look at analog to digital, right? So this this kind of transformation from kind of analog paper-based transactions into more digitization. And the reason I bring that up in mortgage is that really – Mortgage has kind of lagged behind what the securities market has, you know, adopted certainly years ago in terms of high-frequency trading and and certainly um, you've got high automation, you've got settlements and really days and uh, the ability to be able to you know look at your ledger and be able to say, okay, look, I've I've got my trades, I know who I'm trading with and where my risk exposure is, so that's really been kind of the c- securities market and certainly even the OTC markets as far as Mortgage goes. Mortgage has got a challenge, and the way I describe it, certainly internally, it's a little bit different of an asset type, right? It's a long-dated asset, it is, so yeah. it's not like it's not like a futures contract where you know longest you're out, you know, 90 days or maybe even a year on mm-hmm. some contracts. I mean, here obviously the you know maturity in seven and a half, eight years, depending upon rates, and so you you have to be able to track it, obviously through servicing, through its life cycle events as well as appreciate that, you know, at the end end piece of it is a consumer and a home and a piece of collateral. So it's got a a lot of complexity that you don't find in, say, the equities market, where it's just basically a price and, you know, ticker symbol. So what I think is going to happen, at least as the industry has been migrating, is looking at different dimensions of the transaction where they've tried to, to digitize, right? And I think you've seen this, you know, whether it's fully digital closing, uh, disclosures, or whether it's hybrid closings, which people are are moving to, you know, it's it's trying to put the digitization into the recording into the county records, which is what um, Simplifile does, and so I think over time you're going to see a process that will be accelerated but you won't be giving up quality. And I think that's the really critical concern. I I think people think, oh, no, we're going to go there again, right, which is where loan Mm -hmm. production was just accelerating and there was sloppy paperwork and there was sloppy execution. And I think the promise of digitization is that not only you get the velocity But you also get the quality and then you get the capital efficiency. So I think those are the three things that are kind of the capital market side of it. Obviously, from a consumer experience, you have, uh, you know, a lot quicker of a close and certainly easier. And then, you know, in that respect, people can really focus on the key aspects of educating the consumer. So I I think it's, it's really across the board and it's looking at how to apply technology through the entire mortgage life cycle.
0: When you talk about the pit, from pits to screens, I remember going into those pits. I mean, observing that, watching it live is extraordinary. Watch that, but how archaic it was. That's how we started. And the mortgage industry is certainly moving towards the screens. And I think you have a clear vision to that. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Simplify. I, I, I'm familiar with the company. They were an advertiser on my podcast for a while. Liked their overall vision. What particularly caught your attention about that company that would give us insights to where your views are on the mortgage industry, specifically? Again, going to this much granularity, Chris, because I do respect you and your perspective, especially coming from the ICE perspective. Where do we see the opportunities? What did you see in Simplify? You touched on it just now, but go into that a little deeper, if you would.
1: Well, well, you know, first of all, one, it's really well run company. Um, Paul Clifford is the CEO there. I've had a lot of respect for. I've gotten to know him over the years, and you know, he had a pretty clear vision as to where he wanted to go with creating a network between settlement and the county, county recorders. And I think that over time, he, he just had kind of a laser focus in, in the sense that he, did. Uh, he knew yeah. exactly, you know, what he needed to do and how we needed to get counties to adapt and get engaged in some change management, create those integrations into the land record systems, work with the right integrators and counterparties. So, you know, he he had a view that... I stemmed from some early digitization discussions and this goes back to almost 2000 2001 and you know most of what i know from from that history of course came directly from him but it mm-hmm. it sounds like there were some initial efforts really with the growth the growth of the internet where some of the government sponsored enterprises and others looked around and said you know which parts of these transactions have to be digitized, and he took that one, which was that delivery into the you know the county records, and said, Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on that. I'm gonna go around and convince the, the the county recorders that this is beneficial to them in terms of not having to handle paperwork. When you ask him about well, who was your competitor at the time, and he said, well, it was it was FedEx. I mean, people were literally That's shipping right. packages, and so. The benefit of having a fully auditable trail that can submit into into that public record, receive data back, so that you're confident that that, that transaction and almost guaranteed that that transaction has taken place, really adds a lot of value, all right, to, the, to both to the lender as well as uh, title agents and the submitters, and also on the county side. So I think he he really he, he, the benefit of that was that if you think about it, the way I describe it is, you know, at the end of a mortgage, you've kind of, you've got this conclusion of a series of documents that obviously make them make their way into close. And then they kind of They get spread back out right, to the counties, and as we know, there's some data that gets fed into MERS, and there's there's data that goes to the custody institutions, and it goes to the servicers. So it's trying to make sure that that network operation can have some integrity, which is what we're trying to do both with MERS, both the residential historical system, as well as the e-registry, which is the system of record for e-notes. And so we take that very seriously and we say, okay, in terms of the authenticity of your e-note, we can work with the e-registry, but then also look at Simplify as another endpoint on a network into the county recorder. So I think there's a lot of similarities and the ability to be able to go back to the lender and and settlement and be able to say, here's your trail, here's your data, and feel confident that that transaction has, has been executed accurately.
0: I love his vision. I love how you guys picked up on it, and the synchronicity between that and Merge is pretty extraordinary. Let's talk a little bit about the growth of the e-registry system. Amy sent over some statistics, and I was floored that the total number of e-notes registered in September was over 14,000, more than any previous month in the history of the e-registry system. This is really interesting to see the growth, and based on that, where do you think this is going to go? Are we going to really see this industry, which has been, excuse the expression, in the pits still, yeah. <laughs> in a very analog, going to this digital? And really, are we going to see it? And if so, I believe it will happen. It's, it's inevitable to happen. But how much longer will it take for this archaic industry called the mortgage industry to get there?
1: You raise a good point, David, and and I have to I, you know I, I remind people as I mentioned earlier, it's a long dated asset. Uh, the other dimension mm-hmm. of mortgage is there's a lot of legacy assets, right? There's there's you have to you know, bring along enterprise systems, servicing systems, a lot of systems that that are fundamental to the industry, and so as those systems evolve, it's a multi-year project. As you see people move off of either servicing platforms or LOSs or uh, What have you these kind of core technologies uh, title production systems? So I think I think with with the investment that you've seen really over the past 18 months, and I think going forward you see another 18 months of what I call more implementation, I looked at it and when I came here at ICE in 2011, uh, I worked on a couple different projects, uh, not related to mortgage, but then migrated into mortgage and really at the time, I think even through 2015, you almost saw an entire preoccupation with compliance to the Dodd-Frank um, Act right so so yeah. a lot of people yeah. were really focused on investments and, and compliance and, and updating their platforms to ensure that you know they, they didn't cause any problems as they did with the crisis again and then you saw a break in probably 2016 17 and, and more recently where people are starting to invest in their infrastructure and technology and in some ways I, when I was out at the digital mortgage conference in Las Vegas, uh, I guess about yeah. two, three weeks ago, yeah. in some respects, the technology complexity and certainly the the benefits of it are almost outstripping the ability for lenders to adopt new practices. So I think our observation and certainly conversations with lenders is get your processes right and and look at it and look at a a broader change management context rather than look at it as a technological fix. I think technology can do lots of really interesting things, but you have to get your, your people aligned. You have to get executive sponsorship. You have to have the right budget. It, you have to have the right mindset. Any of these things in and of themselves are not easy to do, but to get uh, harmony and synchronization across your organization is really critical. So I think what we've seen and what I've tried to impress upon anybody who's come to us to talk about the e-registry and e-notes specifically was I don't want to do a conference call unless you tell me that your counsel's on, your operations director, your technologist your business sponsors because it is a, a you know cross-functional, highly collaborative endeavor to get it right. And so, I think eNotes, you know, they've been around for a number of years. Um, I think people are starting to understand the the benefit, uh, certainly of being able to, to pledge them and, and use them in, in, through warehouse lines. So I think the adoption cycle is really looking favorable, and uh, people have been able to do this at scale. Uh, I think Amy uh, and I talked about this in terms of the, the numbers, but I think it was 318 e-notes in 2018 first quarter where we did almost 19,000. So I think that's, yeah. that's been real impressive, but more interestingly yes. – We've been able to see a broader base. So in the beginning of the year, I think we had 45 institutions doing first-time production of an e-note. Uh, most recently in September, we've seen 75 institutions. So you're, you're getting a broader base. You're getting more uh, liquidity providers coming in. So I, I think it's going to be a, a favorable future for, for e-notes and, and digitization.
0: Well, when you look at the leaders that are doing it, and the number one lender out there is doing this at a tremendous rate, and that's Quicken. And so you can pay attention to the leaders, and if you want to be successful, do what the leaders are doing. We are clearly thrilled to have you as a guest and Intercontinental Exchange ICE is a leader. And I'm so excited I've had the time to just spend some time here. As we exit, what are some things that you would like our listeners to know that are really on your heart that you say some advice to them or say, pay attention to this? What what would it be?
1: Our mantra here has been kind of advocate for the digitization, but also educate. And so I think, I think that there's a lot to know. Um, there's a lot to try to figure out the transition from your paper-based transactions into more digitization. I think collaboration is key. You have to bring all your counterparties to the table. So I think between advocacy, education, and collaboration is really the, the fundamental tenants that are going to help people, you know, find the efficiencies that they want to in, in digitization. And then I think it's also a degree of just patience. You know, there is no quick fixes. It's not just a technology build. It's being able to marshal all your resources uh, in, in a market, which, as you know, is is always challenging. And so I highly recommend, we, we've got a very robust webinar program. We try to you bring as much as we can to the industry in that respect really kind of a neutral clearinghouse if you would of ideas yes. we bring a lot of different member institutions and best practices and then also to the motto that has come up is be as easy as you can be it's not a flicking of a switch it's looking at different business processes where you can apply the technology and and building on it over time so um, that would be my recommendation for people who are thinking about this this kind of next step in their operations and, and production. Well,
0: you guys have been doing quarterly, I believe it's quarterly seminars or gatherings where people can come in and it's a crash course. Amy's been sending some information. We continue to talk about it on the podcast and we'll continue to do so. So I, I would like to have a sense of I being mean, a loosely described partner with MERS and what you're doing to really help create an awareness. We've got a large listing audience and anything we can do to support this adoption Chris I think it's so important for the industry more importantly it's for those that are so caught up right now in just volume that's overwhelming to them they are so busy taking care of the business in the door they're not paying attention to this so it's important that they understand that and know that you have the resources through webinars and these I believe it's quarterly events that you're putting together uh crash courses if they are uh, boot camps I think is what Amy calls them and I think it's outstanding so I encourage people to get over to the website we'll put that information up on the show notes folks so you can go listen to that and we also put in a, a link to chris's bio background via linkedin go check that out Chris, I'd like to get you back as an in con- intercontinental that's got over 5,000 employees, and yet you're managing these small little micro groups, Simplify and MERS, which has just got a fraction of number of employees. How do you manage uh, a smaller group inside of a bigger group? That's a whole other discussion I would like to get you back on and talk about leadership and being a change agent in an industry that's still kind of stuck in the pits, going back to that uh that analogy. So but really good. Thank you so much, Chris. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you, David. And a big shout out to Amy and your whole team there that do a great job of uh, keeping those of us trying to get the word out informed on what's
1: going on. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Very much I know I I definitely, David, thank you for your time and I have a lot of respect for for the podcast and really what you're doing for the industry and and, you know I I do put a plug in for my team. I think that you know any great leader it's 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 the team behind him that makes it work.
0: So true, and you do have an excellent team. Again, Chris, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. I want this to be shared, and listeners, I encourage you to share this with side of your company. I know you're all buried with volume right now, but don't take your eyes off the future because the future is happening more quickly than you realize, and ICE, MERS, and Simplifile is leading the way. Chris, again, thank you for being here with me today. Okay. Thank you, David. That's it for this week's podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. Again, again, share this with your colleagues. It's important. I want to say a special thank you to all of our guests as well as our sponsors Black Knight, Open Mortgage Finastera, ResX, Warehouse Lending, a division of United Bank, as well as the MBA Lenders One, the Mortgage Collaborative, CMLA, Velma as well as KnowledgeCoup, Vidyard, and AI Assist. If you're interested in advertising with us, go to our website, looking on lending, you'll see a link up there. You can click on it, and you'll get over to us or get a hold of Paul or Bill Pharmacus, who, both of which handle are working with us on advertising. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everyone, and talk to you next week. <music>